I am not Mike. Uh, so Mike, our pastor, for those of you who are visiting, one, welcome, uh, but he is out. He is suffering for the Lord um, in Disney World. So he has uh, gone on family vacation. Uh, he'll be out for the next two weeks, so y'all are stuck with me. Um, I am an elder. For those who don't know, my name is Michelle McKeska. I'm one of the elders here at First Colony Christian Church, and we're so happy to have you this morning. Um, so right now, we are in the midst of a series called Stories of Old. Um, so in order to kind of recap where we are, um, we have been looking at the stories in the book of Genesis. Um, so when Mike had come to me, this was about two months ago, and said, hey, um, I want you to preach for two weeks, and uh, you know, you can maybe do a two-week series. I'm thinking about doing the flood. And I was like, huh, well, if you're doing the flood, then I want to do the next two stories after that. And he was like, well, why don't we just make it a four-week series, and let's call it a day. So we did. Um, and the, <laughs> the thing that I did not think about whenever I committed to preach was I had also committed about six months before to write a paper uh, and present in Nashville, which was this week. So I, um, you know how you plan two things and you don't realize those two things are happening at the same time? I am very famous for that. Uh, you can ask my husband. For the most part, he usually gets the brunt end of that. So we'll, I'll have told my parents that we're going out to a dinner and I forget to put it on the calendar. And then I'm like, oh, hey, by the way, we've got this, 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 and this. And he's just used to it by now. But um, I never cease to amaze myself. So I have, the past week, driven... 28 hours in the past four days because we decided to drive to Nashville um, and then we went down and saw his family yesterday and we got home last night around 10. So if I say anything that doesn't make sense, that is why. Um, but anyway, so let me recap where we've been so far. So in this series, um, we have seen that Genesis can be broken into two halves. You've got Genesis 1 through 11, which deals with God's interaction with the whole world. Okay, all the stories deal with God and his interactions with the whole world. And then Genesis 12 through 50, God is interacting with one specific family that will eventually become the nation of Israel. And Genesis 11 and 12, those two chapters, lie at the heart of this break, of this separation. And we see that a lot hangs, a lot depends on what happens in these two stories. So we're going to look at those for the next two weeks. Um, and so if you have your uh, Bibles, go ahead and flip them open. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 11. Um, so, so far in Genesis, we have seen that God has created a good world. So he starts off and he says the world is good. Um, and that's really the message of Genesis 1. One of the frustrations that both Mike and I share is that um, particularly in Genesis, it seems that the church has... Um, made or asked a lot of modern questions. So we want Genesis, we want um, that story to answer a lot of our modern or scientific questions. But it just seems like Genesis won't do that. It seems like it's trying to communicate something else. And we've made Genesis 1 kind of this battleground, um, this, this war to be fought against those who would try and, and teach a different origins story. And I think um, both Mike and I would say that that maybe is missing the point that's maybe missing the, the point that Genesis is trying to tell us, right? Um, so the same can be true with the story that we're going to see today. So Genesis 1, God creates a good world. And then right at Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fall. They disobey God, um, and they eat the fruit, right? 
And then within one chapter, we have the first murder. So it's, it's sin has entered the world, and it's starting to fracture, and it's starting to break things apart to the point where a brother is killing their brother. Right? This is, this is not good news for humanity. Um, and then last week, we looked at the story of the flood. Um, now, the author says that the thoughts and the intentions of humans were continuously inclined towards evil. Now, I have a hard time thinking about what that looks like, right? Where all of humanity is constantly thinking and they're constantly bent towards evil. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have seen the Noah movie. Anybody? No? Maybe not wanting to admit it? Um, I, I thought that the Noah movie did a very good job. Um, it really painted the picture. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. Um, just for that, like it, it really paints the picture of what a world looks like that is filled with violence. Um, it's not good, right? So that's the story of Genesis 6. And so God responds, not out of anger, right, but out of sadness. How can I fix this in a world that has gone wrong beyond repair? So he responds with a flood. And he picks out Noah and his family. He says, Noah is, is walking with the Lord. He is one favor in my eyes. He's righteous. So I'm going to pick him and his family and a few animals. And we're going to essentially reboot creation. So when Noah gets off the ark, God repeats some of the commands that he gives to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? Um, however, we see that there's a problem. Because as soon as Noah gets off the boat, right, he gets drunk. And then there's this really weird thing that goes down between him and his son in a tent. And I'll just leave it at that. I can go back and read it later. Um, but there is a problem because the person that God has decided to start over with also seems to have an issue. The problem has not been solved, right? Um, now, after the flood, though, so humanity has not changed. We still have this um, sin that haunts us, this violence that haunts us within ourselves. But God changes. After the flood, he says, I'm never doing that again. I'm never doing that again. And I'm committing. I'm making a covenant with Noah. And I'm putting this sign, the sign of my covenant in the sky. What we would say is the rainbow. But in the Hebrew, the picture, the image is God is setting aside his bow. So he has put his bow up in the cloud. So in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 13, it says, I've set my bow in the cloud. So as long as you see my bow there, you know it's not in my hand. And we continue to see it. He is no longer bent towards destruction. That's not what he's going to do. That didn't solve it, right? Because humanity still has this, this evil, this, this violence within us. So today we're going to look at where we have come from. Uh, sorry, where we are going. So Genesis 11 is going to take us a few generations after Noah. So we're going to see how humanity is doing. Um, so again, in Genesis 11, we'll start in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, as I said earlier, one of the commands 
that Noah had been given was to be fruitful and multiply. And we see that humanity has done this, right? They have fulfilled that command. They are now um, quite significant in number. Uh, but they, instead of filling the earth, they've gathered in one place, right? And, they, and they're wanting to avoid that. And the story tells us that they have one language and the same words. And if that sounds like a little bit repetitious, that's the author's point. He's trying to say the same thing so that we understand there's this unity. There's this unity that humanity has. They have the same language. Um, there's a theory that the same lip could be a liturgical, so they have the same religion. Um, I think that's a bit of a stretch. So I think what the author is trying to communicate is this unity of humankind. Um, and they have migrated from the east. This is a theme that you see throughout the book of Genesis, that humanity, ever since the fall, has been east of Eden. We are no longer in the garden, right, where we have that close connection with God. We're east of Eden. Interestingly, in the Septuagint, so the Greek Old Testament, the word Shinar is replaced with Babylon. So for most Jews who would be reading this text, this story is a story about Babylon. This story is a story about empire. And an empire that they didn't really like because they had destroyed their temple and taken them off into exile. Okay, so humanity has united. They're in one place. And not only this, but they have come up with a new piece of technology, the brick. Okay, so I didn't think that the brick was a new piece of technology, but that just shows my ignorance of all things with, in the engineering world. My husband would laugh at me. Um, but so in Mesopotamia, people were dependent upon stone. And they were dependent upon the availability of that stone. So that would limit how tall your building could be, how much you would have. But here in Babel, they've discovered that they can make stone. <coughs> they've discovered the process of making brick. Now what that means is that they can build more stuff, right? And they can build taller things, and they can build more walls and fortified defenses. And they can really ground themselves in one place and create the city. So it makes this possible. Um, so not only do they seek this fortified city, but they also build a tower. And in the text, it says this tower is special, right? Because it's supposed to reach the heavens. And this gives us a clue of the purpose of this tower. It's not just any building, but it's a place where humans can have access to God. Not a bad thing, right? Um, so most people would understand this in the ancient Near East as a ziggurat. Have you all been to any museums, seen like the, the look of those ziggurats, right? So this was a place, it was a gateway to the heavens. So it was meant to be this access point where heaven and earth met so that humans could come to this one place and the gods would be able to interact with them, okay? If that sounds familiar, the ziggurat is kind of a precursor to the temple, to the temple that eventually the Jews will build, okay? So they have decided to build it. Um, and at this point, we're not really sure if that's a good or bad thing, right? Uh, but the second half of the story is going to give us a clue. So we'll read on in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off the building of the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. 
And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Okay, once again, we see that Hebrew narrative is short and sweet, right? This whole thing happens in nine verses, which is why, as Mike so uh, accurately pointed out, reading Hebrew narrative can sometimes be kind of boring, right? We are used to rising and falling action and character development and where's the romance between so-and-so and another person. I mean, it's, it's kind of dry. It's done in nine verses. Um, however, we do see that there is some intentionality in how the story is framed up. So you have the first half of the Babel story um, focusing on what the humans are doing, what humanity is up to. And the second half shows what God is up to. And there's this irony, there's this play on words. Um, so one of the things, the author definitely has a sense of humor, is that God has to come down, right, to see the tower. So this great magnificent tower that's supposed to reach the heavens is not quite tall enough because God has to come down. He has to descend, right? And then ultimately the, the irony at the end is that they've built this entire thing so that they will not be dispersed. And at the end of the story, they're dispersed because they built it, right? So the tower that is supposed to keep them united has ended up being the reason why they're dispersed. Okay, and again in verse 6, we are given kind of a window into the thoughts of God. We're, we had that a bit in the flood story, and we're given it once again. Um, he says in the text, this is only the beginning of what they will do, right? So maybe it's not that this tower, that this building is kind of a bad thing, but he's saying this could lead to something not good. This could lead to um, perhaps a, a repeat of what has just happened. He's not wanting that to happen. Um, so if you have a pen, I would like you to underline one word. Um, we may not get to the significance of it today, but we're going to come back to it next week. So in verse 4, they give two reasons. There are two reasons why humans have built this tower and this city. And the first, the first word that I want you to circle or underline is name. Okay. Um, so the reason, the first reason that they built this city is to make a name for themselves. And the second is to avoid being dispersed. Um, now, reading the story in the past, I always kind of thought, okay, what's the big deal? They've built a tower. There are lots of worse things I could think of for humanity to do with their time. In, in fact, they came up with this new piece of technology. Um, so they're being kind of inventive and thinking about it. Um, this doesn't seem to be dangerous, right? But the idea, the motive behind this tower is that they are wanting to seek uh, a name for themselves. Um, and I think that we all kind of get um, maybe the, the reason for the harshness of the flood, right? There's, there's this violence, there's this evil um, that seems to about overpower us, but Something that I think is more subtle is hubris, is pride. And it has haunted humanity from the beginning. This is what gets Adam and Eve in trouble, right? So the serpent says, you can be like God. You will know good and evil. So it all stems back to this lack of trust and this wanting to be like God in ways that he doesn't intend. So they've sought to bring fame to their city because if they can claim that they have this access point, this place where God dwells, right? Then it's basically like a tourist attraction, right? They're going to get lots of people. They're going to get lots of trade. They're going to get lots of money. Um, and also a pat on the back, right? We have built this amazing tower. Um, but the second reason 
that they've built it is interesting um, to avoid being dispersed. So as I was reading the story, I wondered why would proximity, why would all of humans together um, make God a little nervous? And I started thinking about this, um, and one of the uh, examples, one of the things that I thought of uh, was my, one of my classes this year. So I'm a teacher. I've taught for two years over at Houston Christian. Uh, seniors, and so seniors are wonderful to teach because all the three teachers before them have trained them for me. So I get, I get them the first semester, and it's wonderful. And then second semester comes around. And they've gotten accepted into all their colleges, right? Trevor, where's Trevor? He can speak. He can speak to this, right? He just recently graduated, okay? Um, and so once that happens, it's really hard to put any kind of a carrot, any kind of a goal, any kind of a motivation to get them to do anything. Trevor's shaking his head. So like, yes, that's exactly right. Okay, so um, I taught the seniors this year, and they had horrible senioritis. I mean, I taught... I've taught for two years, and last year's group was really not that bad. Like, I, it, was, it was normal, it was moderate, it was what I expected. This year's group, way worse. Um, and so, it was, it was a challenge. And I remember getting my class rosters, you get your, your class rosters a week before you teach. And I saw this one class and I said, oh no, this is not good. Um, so it was a class of 18, 14 boys, 4 girls. And I said, no, 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 this is not good. And so I called the counselor, and I'm like, hey, I'm looking at this class, and uh, is there any way we can change it? And she's like, I know, no. <laughs> okay, okay, great. So um, one of my teachers that was teaching across from me was laughing one day, and I was like, what's so funny? And he was like, I just saw the entire football team walk into your class. And I was like, yes, I know. I have the entire football team into that is in this one class. Um, so... And here's the thing, right? So I would see them in the hall, I would see them at games or whatever, and they're decent, respectful, wonderful human beings, right? <laughs> if I get them one-on-one -on -one and I'm talking to them, it's fine. But as soon as I've got 14 of them in one classroom together, it's madness. It's craziness. I like to say that their love language was punching each other with words. I mean, that was what was going on in that classroom. And these four precious, sweet little girls <laughs> in my class were just so frightened to say anything because as soon, like, as soon as you kind of said something, right? So it's a very discussion-heavy class. And as soon as they would say an idea, right, five guys would jump on you with like, oh, that's ridiculous, you know, and, you know. So needless to say, they didn't talk that much, and I felt really bad for them. Um, but I understood, right, that this there's this idea, I'm sure a psychologist or a sociologist has a word for it, right? But there's, when you get certain people all together, it's a recipe for disaster, right? Uh, so this can happen in sports games, too. So if you go to a sports <coughs> game and you're cheering for your team and there's someone who's cheering for the other team, right, and they're sitting right in front of you, that's annoying, right? And now if they're sitting across the way, far away from you, you can handle it. If they're sitting right in front of you and they're standing up in your way and they're cheering and yelling every time the other team is winning, then you kind of want to punch them in the face, right? It's kind of annoying. Um, well, the one time that I went to a basketball game here at Houston Christian, um, our, our gym is very, very small. It's just the basketball court and the bleachers, okay? 
Um, and the schools that we play are apparently like super mean. Anyway, um, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a sports person, so maybe it's just like this. I don't know. Anyway, so we get there, and the entire school, the student body, has dressed up like white trash because they think that our students are white trash. Ridiculous, first of all. And second of all, so these, like, you know, two very, like, wealthy prep schools, and this one is dressing up. Anyway. And then I hear this chant. I hear this chant, 281. I'm like, what is 281? Apparently, they were chanting an area code that they thought was less than amazing. So I, I don't know. So they're chanting 281 and dressed up like this, and it comes to blows outside, like after the basketball game. And I had never witnessed this before. And they're like, oh, they do this all the time at the football games. But the football stands are so apart, like they're so far away, nothing ever happens. But because we were so close to each other, let's just say I saw a lot of middle fingers flying, right? There was a lot of very, very hostile um, kind of things going on. I was just like, this is the one time I come to the basketball game, of course. Um, so that was an experience. But there's this, this truth, right, that... When we get close to each other, right, this kind of happens with family, right? The more we hang around those people, stuff starts to kind of rub, right? And we're getting annoyed. Um, and so God, right, he, he sees Babel and is like, this is not good. Humans don't need to be so close, right? Now, this is not to say that human beings can't come together and work and unite, right? But perhaps a community that's right after the flood where we've got some issues, us all being in one place is not maybe the best idea. Uh, so the first thing that we learn from the story is that humans' refusal to scatter, humans' refusal to disperse and fill the earth leads to the magnification of sin. It's just going to lead to extra hostility. So Mike explained last week, and I thought this was a really good way to think about sin. So sin is not... It shouldn't be viewed as breaking this arbitrary law, right? But sin, so often in scripture, is described as kind of a personal force that is seeking to have mastery over you. And you don't want to leave yourself vulnerable to it. So God, at every point in scripture, is trying to insulate us and trying to get us to kind of understand, this is bad for you, right? Sin is ready to pounce. It's called like this crouching lion ready to seek mastery over you. I see it in my classroom. I saw it on the basketball court. And God saw it at Babel. This was not good. Um, so earlier I made you underline the word name. And this word is going to be significant in both this story and the next. Um, so in the next story it will kind of be repeated and given new significance. Um, but for now, I, the heart of the problem here... The heart of the problem of Babel lies in the intention behind building that tower. Again, there's nothing wrong with wanting to build a place where humans can have access to God. But there is a problem when you do so to make a name for yourself. And it's a powerful warning for those of us who seek to do the good thing, right, with maybe some wrong reasons, for wrong reasons. So the second thing we learn from the story is that humans' attempt to achieve a name for themselves reveals a fear of mortality. And that ultimately stems from a lack of trust. Right? So um, the, uh, trying to achieve a name reveals a fear of mortality. Uh, so the attempt of at making a name for yourself, and this was actually an idea in ancient um, 
Israel, is that you would seek to have your name last forever. Um, because your body can't. But if you do something really extraordinary, then people will remember you for generations to come. So I do this exercise with my students. I'll ask, okay, who can remember their grandparents' name? And they've, they've got the grandparents. I'm like, okay, tell me some stories about them. And they've got some stories. Okay, great-grandparents. And they got the names most often. But tell me some stories. Mm, less stories. Okay, give me your great-great-grandparents' name. And I had one student that could give me their great-great-grandparents' name. And, but couldn't really tell me much about them. So I show that and I say, okay, so not only are you, right, uh, you're four generations away from someone not even remembering who you are. And they're like, oh, Miss McCaskill, that's so depressing, right? Because teenagers never really think about that. Um, and so this is a motivator for a lot of people. Sometimes for a lot of unsavory characters, right? Some tyrants or serial killers that are trying to create a name for themselves. Um, but it can also... Uh, present itself in less harmful ways. And I think um, our society in particular is one that is haunted by this because we are very consumed with fame. So we have like, I don't know how many like singing shows now, right? I've lost count. There's The Voice, there's American Idol, there's, I don't know, there's like five. Um, they come out with new ones and it's all about getting that shot, right? Um, so people now are spending their whole lives trying to get onto this show so that they'll get this one shot. And it's, it's like one out of thousands, right? Nothing wrong with, you know, trying it. But again, if our entire goal is simply that, then I think that we've kind of missed something. Um, we have been seeking this fame. Um, and I, I think this can even be expressed in different ways with social media. Now, before you hear me harping on social media, I have a Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I follow them all religiously, all right? So I am here before you uh, just as guilty. But I think there's something interesting uh, about how now we can get a haircut, take a selfie, post it on Facebook, and have 500 people comment and like it. Whereas before, it was such a mundane act, right? You get maybe 12 people or whatever. And I know because I just did that. I just got a haircut, and I totally just did that on Facebook. So um, it's... It's this powerful thing. You can create the reality that you want on social media that's a lot more exciting and different from your actual reality. And that's a powerful temptation. It's a powerful thing that we, we desire and that we want. And I think the story of Babel warns us and cautions us to not do that. Warns us against seeking this name, seeking this fame. It's doomed to fail. Um, and it's so easy to get tangled in. So now we need to look at God's reaction. And I, we don't want to miss it. Um, so he makes it clear that if he leaves mankind in this state, we're a few chapters out from, from Genesis 6, from humans seeking evil. Um, and God's reasoning here echoes the story of Adam and Eve. So when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, God says, we've got to kick them out of the garden. Because if they eat the tree of life, they're going to be stuck like that. We've got, I've got to figure this out, but we have to protect them, right? So his logic, again, is similar. This is not good for humanity. Let's disperse them. 
This is what they're supposed to do. So he holds his commitment to Noah. There's not another destruction. Um, but what he does is he tries to mitigate that propensity for violence. So this means that God's action here should not be viewed as a punishment, but mercy. Um, and I think if we view God's scattering and the confusion of those languages as a punishment against humanity, then we've missed We've missed the point of the story. We've missed this key component. Remember, when Cain rises up against Abel, he protects the murderer. He says, I'm going to protect you. And he commits, no, I'm never going to destroy the earth again. So time and time again, what God does in the Old Testament, I think sometimes we view the Old Testament as, you know, this angry God and the New Testament as this loving God. But I think we've perhaps misread some things in the Old Testament, or we focused on uh, one text over another text. But we see that God is committed from very early on, because he loves his creation, he's committed to his creation, he's not going to let it destroy itself. This is not the action of an angry or jealous God, it's the action of a concerned father over a wayward child. So what does this mean for us? Um, I think there are three main takeaways. Three main takeaways from the story of Babel. So the first, um, I don't think that Babel seeks to teach us where all the languages and all the cultures came from. I, I think that a lot of times Babel is understood as um, a, a scientific or a historical description of this is where all the languages, this is where all of the races came from. Again, I think that we are trying to impose our modern questions onto an ancient text. Um, and I think if we do that, then we miss, we miss what Babel is trying to tell us. The second is that seeking to advance the kingdom of God for our own glory is doomed to fail. It will not succeed. Um, I think one of the clearest examples of this is in the, the people who we call the religious right. right? So people who would say, um, you know, we need to get America back to its former glory. We need to get America back to its foundation. Um, we were founded upon Christian principles and we've, we've strayed, right? So we need to get America back to this. Um, and again, I don't think that there's anything wrong with having less corruption in politics, right? We would all hope and long for that. We would all hope and long for a government that had a sense of a moral compass, right? That's, that's definitely a desire that we have. But I think the rhetoric often uh, the words often betray our intention, right? It's all about getting America back to greatness. It's all about making America back on top and being blessed. And I think when they say that, I'm reminded of Babel. I think that's, that's maybe missing it. I think, and I think it often leads to um, justification for coercion, right? So we're going to take it back by force. We're going to, you know, make sure that this happens no matter what. Um, where I think that we should caution against that. We should see that maybe there's a different way. Maybe we can be a witness of an alternative way of living and don't have to force it upon others, right? Um, I think that could be more powerful. Uh, and the last and final takeaway. So God's response to our sin is more often characterized by mercy than punishment. Um, it's funny, I didn't realize that today was going to be uh, the day of Pentecost. I didn't know that that was the day that this was celebrating. And I, I had planned this whole sermon and we were going to end with Pentecost. So I think it's 
kind of cool, but I wanted to remind us of that story. Um, so thankfully, Lindsay read it, and I will not try to read all of those names again, because that's that was really good. Um, but what we see in the story of Pentecost, I think, is very interesting. We don't see God reversing Babel. We don't see him making everybody have the same language. What we see is God enabling people to understand each other. What we see is God giving people the spirit. God being able to renew us and restore us. Not to flatten out our differences, but so that we can appreciate them. So that we can understand them. And I think this reveals the heart of God. And again, it confirms that Babel is not a punishment, right? If Babel was a punishment, then he'd take us all back to one language. But he doesn't do that. There's beauty in diversity. There's beauty in difference. Right? But we have to be renewed and restored as people to be able to appreciate that and to get along with people who are, are different from us, to overcome those challenges. And it's only, and this is what Pentecost reveals to us, it's only through the gift of the Spirit that we're able to do that. Right? We, we want it. All of humanity seeks it. The very name university is unity and diversity. That's those two words coming together. This is at the heart of what humanity desires, this united in purpose and yet different people. And it's ultimately through God, through the Spirit, through the Trinity that we see that happen. So the final thing I want to leave you with. The story of Babel is a story about empire. It is a warning about building a city for the glory and power of man. It's a story about a city that seeks to take the place of God. But in contrast, the story of Pentecost and the story that we're going to read next week is a story about how God is able to bring back his creation that is currently rebelling against him. And he's able to heal it and restore it through the creation of a spirit-filled community. And that's something to be excited about. Let's pray.